understand why I encourage you to uh, find a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And uh, we are going to back up. Uh, my, my sermon text is primarily from verses 22 to 27 with a particular focus on verse 24. Uh, however, for the sake of context, I want us to start at verse 17, page 929 in the Pew Bibles that are provided. And from there we will go to verse 27. Acts 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with all trials and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to, to you the whole counsel of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we are blessed by the body of Christ that has gathered. But we are further blessed by your word. Lord, we, we confess together that all of Scripture is breathed out by you and therefore profitable for us. Lord, there's not one ounce of this holy book that is irrelevant, unimportant, but all of it, Lord, is for our good so that we glorify you. So teach us, Lord. Add to it. Speak through to Speak through me this morning, Lord, for the sake of your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's easy to start something new. Some of you, just the thought of something new makes you a little bit anxious. But for, I'd say most people, starting something new, there's a surge of adrenaline. That first day of work, that first day of school, starting something new is this exciting movement, the unknown. Many people, when you start a new relationship, there's all kinds of special get giddy and, oh, I can't wait to see that person again. 
all your money goes towards it and all your excitement and all your thoughts are taken up by this person. Starting something new, a new relationship is exciting. There's a sense, sense of new beginnings, new horizons. But as you live life a little bit, you soon discover that life is not a 50-yard dash, that you race to the end with all your gusto, giving it all and getting hardly to the end. Now, I know that there's few runners in here. John Meskus, <laughs> we pray for you regularly. I, I do not understand running. I, I especially do not understand marathons. But from what I understand... It is about pacing. If you give your all and run with all that you have, you end up just crippled on the ground, torn muscles, barely able to breathe, and you never finish the race. Am I right? Yes, let's keep on going. The trick is not just to begin well, but to finish well. And I know that there's many, even in, in ministry, who have started off strong with a tremendous amount of excitement about the ministry that God has called them to. Man, I've gone through seminary. I've been equipped. I've been ordained. I've been installed in this church. And now it's time to go. And they come in with all the gusto. And they even call it the honeymoon years. Because in the, those honeymoon years, you can't screw up anything. The church is so excited to have you. Very quickly you discover, though, that it's an absolute mess. And you get wounded along the way. They start off with gusto, and then they hit their first bout of criticism that's found in the church. They find out that people don't respond always positively, as you may have hoped. They, they find that they, they get themselves even into conflicts with even fellow ministers or elders who are there for the sake of the gospel. And perhaps this stress just flows over into their marriages. I've been there. I've experienced it. And I've seen that over a few years, many of these pastors who go in with just a gusto for the ministry that God has called, or, or young believers who have been called to do some sort of ministry, they give it all. And then after a while, they leave the ministry that God has given them because of bitterness or cynicism. None of us want this to happen to us. And Paul didn't want it to happen to the elders from Ephesus. He, he wanted them, as just as he wants for us, he wants them to sprint across the finish line, not to drop out of the race. He is sharing from his own life experience that Run strong until the end of life. It was even in, in 2 Timothy, he says in his final letter to his son of the, in, in the faith, he declares, I fought the fight, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. The secret to Paul's strong finish is summed up in verse 24. And so this morning, I have a difficult task. I want to convince you 
that verse 24 not only applied for apostle, the Apostle Paul, but I want to convince you that it applies to each and every person who knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I want verse 24 to be true for you. In, in my prayer, we, we confess together that all of Scripture is God-breathed and therefore profitable for all of us. So this section is true for you. Paul did not consider his life of any account as dear and near to himself in order that he may finish the course, the ministry that he received from the Lord. And Paul is saying to finish the race, he needed to put his ministry above even his own life. So this is our theme for the morning. Our theme is this, to finish the course. You must put the ministry that you received from the Lord even above life itself. Let me say it again. To finish the course, to be like Paul, to say, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith, to finish the course, you must put the ministry that God has that you received from the Lord even above life itself. It kind of already is kind of bumping up against our Americanism, isn't it? What are you talking about? Life itself? I'm all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Come on, this does not ring a chord of happiness. And you might be thinking, man, that, that is fine for the Apostle Paul. That's okay for him and for those who have been called into the ministry or the mission field. But I am just a regular layperson. I am just a regular member. I'm just a regular Christian. So I think what we have to do is we have to start off with just a basic truth. And here's the first basic truth. It is this. To finish the course you must recognize that God has entrusted a ministry to you. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian without a ministry. No such thing. And now, let, let me just be clear here. I am not talking about a ministry in the church where you're getting a paid position. I'm not talking about just that, but it may be that. I'm talking about God may have entrusted you as a mother to be the most godly God-fearing mother, a Titus II kind of woman that is entrusting the faith to your children. And you are this Proverbs 31 kind of mother. That too is ministry. It may be the kind of ministry where you are a school teacher in an elementary school setting and you are to be the light of Christ in a dark place there. It may be down Wood Street right here where you are to be the light by your life and your words. That is your ministry. You see, we have fallen into a wrong way of thinking where there are some people who are super committed to ministry, but everyone else just kind of putters around at serving the Lord in their spare time as volunteers. It's significant to note that each time in Scripture that the subject of spiritual gifts is mentioned, it uses the word each or every. And as Paul or Peter puts it, 
as each one has received, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in, the, in serving one another for the good, for as good serv- ser- stewards, sorry, of the manifold grace of God. Every Christian has received a gift from God. Every Christian will have to give an account of his or her stewardship in using that gift for God's purposes as Jesus taught in the parable of the talents. So whether you are a waiter, whether you are an accountant, a teacher, a carpenter, a housewife, retired, if you are a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must see yourself as being in ministry just as I am in ministry. Each one of you needs to see yourself in ministry. I happen to be supported by my ministry. You may not. In that matter, you may be more like the Apostle Paul than I am. He chose to work in a secular job to pay his bills. Ministry is not just a task or a a sphere of service. It is a mentality, a way of thinking that permeates all of life. Seeing yourself in ministry means that you are available to God 24-7. You are available to God 24-7 to use you in any way that he so wills to help others be drawn near to God. It means, it may mean sharing with someone in a practical way and meeting a need. It may mean sharing the gospel with an unbeliever or encouraging a believer by listening to his or her problems and by sharing relevant scripture. You can minister through giving and you can minister through prayer. But whatever form it takes, whatever form it takes, ministry means not focusing on yourself, but on others by being available to God to work through your life. You won't fulfill the ministry that God has given to you if you aren't even aware that you are in ministry. But you are. And maybe you're thinking, I'd like to do that someday. I'd like to do ministry someday. But right now, I'm too busy to serve God. Have you seen my kids? Do you know this season of life that we're at? Or maybe if I could just get through this health issue, I can start serving God in some kind of fabulous kind of ministry, ministerial kind of way. But right now, I'm just absolutely too busy. So sometime, I'm going to get around to it. And if that's, your, if that's your mentality, then here's the second point that you need to hear. The second point is this, to finish the course, you must recognize that you are a conscript, not a volunteer. You're a conscript, not a volunteer. Paul tells tells, uh, them that he is constrained or bound in the spirit on his way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to him there, except that the Holy Spirit has solemnly testified that he is going to run into imprisonment and afflictions. They're waiting for them. They're waiting for him there. But this did not detour, deter, deter Paul or make him decide that it, it was time to make a move to a retirement community along the Aegean Sea and 
where he could play Jewish golf every day, whatever that may look like. It did not deter him from going to Jerusalem. He kept on going. Why not? Well, why didn't Paul think that imprisonment and affliction doesn't really sound like a really nice, happy future? That's not my pursuit of happiness that I was thinking of. So I think I'm going to opt for a different course. Why didn't Paul think that way? Because Paul didn't see himself as a volunteer. Paul didn't see him as a volunteer for Jesus. He saw himself as a conscript. Somebody who is underneath the orders of his Lord his master, his commander. It's difficult to kind of determine what the phrase bound in the spirit should, whether it should be a capital S or a small S. Some, some translations put one way, some put it another way. Some take it that Paul had an inner compulsion to go to Jerusalem, but it was not from the Holy Spirit. That it was Paul's own idea. Donald Greyhouse, uh, Gray Barnhouse goes on so far to say that Paul was sinning by even going to Jerusalem. But since Luke does not even give a hint of that, that Paul was sinning and making a serious blunder here, and since Paul was a man who walked in close fellowship and communion with God, I conclude it was the Holy Spirit compelling him to go to Jerusalem, while at the same time warning him that there are going to be hardships along the way. It is going to be difficult when you get there. In other words, Paul saw himself as a conscript, one who has been drafted into the Lord's army, into the Lord's service, and he was under orders. So he sought to obey the Lord no matter what he said. He believed that the Holy Spirit was commanding him to go. And all too often, churches convey the wrong message. We can say that we are looking for volunteers for Jesus. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to set out some uh, clipboards in the back, and we want you to volunteer for Jesus. And in fact, we're going to guilt you into volunteering for Jesus, right? We're pretty good about that. The problem with that view is you can choose to serve. You can choose to serve, and then you can choose not to serve, or, or, or just to plain quit serving if the servant's service is not to your liking. But conscripts don't have a choice. They don't have a choice. If you get drafted, you serve in the army because you were chosen to serve. You may not like the food. You might not like your living quarters. You might not like where the army assigned you to go, but you serve anyway because you are under orders. That's how Christians need to see themselves. We are under orders. If Christ has bought you with his blood, if he died on the cross, shed his blood for you, took away your sins so that the wrath of God is no longer on you, but you are now seen as righteous in his eyes. You've been purchased with a price. You belong to him as his bondservant. Bondservants don't choose to serve. They're under orders. And if the service isn't pleasant or the service isn't fun, they're not free to quit. To finish the course, we need to see ourselves as conscripts, not as volunteers. Thirdly, to finish the course, 
you must sign over your life to Jesus Christ, expecting hardships as you follow him. Paul did not consider his, his own life worth anything. It wasn't near and dear to him because he, the only thing that he felt was important and critical that he does is finish the course, sharing the gospel. If following Jesus meant hardship, if following Jesus meant slander, if it meant imprisonment, if it meant death, he had settled the issue long ago. The old song, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Paul could sing those songs without feeling guilty. He was able to say, Lord, Take my moments and my days and my years and my decades and let them flow with ceaseless praise. I know, Lord, what is coming. The Holy Spirit has, has told me that these things are going to be coming, but I will go. He was willing to die for the Savior who had died for him. When William James, when James Calvert went out as a missionary to the cannibals in the Fiji Islands, the captain of the ship sought to, to turn him back, to convince him, you know, this is not a good idea. This is what he said. You will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go to such savages. Calvert replied, we died before we came here. Those faithful missionaries signed their lives over to Christ. <laughs> and again, there's just this big mistaken idea in evangelical churches that there are two options in the Christian life. And the one, the most popular option is just to sign up to go to church when it's convenient, drop a few bucks in the offering plate now and then, live the American dream of accumulating enough money and stuff to live a comfortable life, the pursuit of my happiness, my joy. And if you have time, you might decide to volunteer at church, but only if it's convenient for me. If it, if it works, your priority in life under this option is to enjoy yourself, to live a good life, and to retire someday and spend at least the last 15 years of your life driving around in America in your mobile home, probably in Arizona, or playing golf in sunny Florida. The second option is not quite as popular. It's for the gung-ho types. And you know them. The gung-ho types who, who probably signed up for the Green Berets somewhere along the line. They're, they're the nutcases. In this option, you ad, you're admittedly some kind of fanatic. Some kind of absolute Christian weirdo who has about 50 different types of tracks in his or her pocket and can whip it out for any kind of circumstance. You give up the American dream and, and write your own will in order to serve Jesus. You, you live to pare down life and give away all your money for the Lord's work. Or you may even give up all the comforts of America. Give it all up and go live in the conditions that are just deplorable to reach people for Jesus Christ. 
And as a missionary, nobody wants you to live at the same level as the folks back home do, right? Man, we're going to send you off to Africa, but we don't want you to live at our same level. Because if you did, your cause would be suspect. But the folks back home aren't called to the same level of service. You're called to deny yourself because you're, you're on the missionary track of commitment. And you've been called to do that. But if you look at Mark 8, Jesus was speaking to not only his disciples, but to the entire crowd when he said this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life, would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In this context, Jesus isn't calling someone to go into this super committed discipleship track that is filled with gung-ho nut jobs. What he is calling people to is a radical self-denial to the point of death. So that's what the take up your cross implies. And he is calling them to salvation. He's calling them to salvation. Every follower of Jesus, not just a a few super committed, is called to this total, all out, lay your life down kind of commitment. And Jesus is clear about it. The Bible makes it clear that following Jesus will mean hardship at some level. It's clear. Not everyone will be tortured or martyred. I don't know anybody in our fellowship. In fact, I don't know any Christians here in the state who have been tortured or martyred. I don't know them personally, been tortured or martyred for the sake of the gospel. But Paul plainly states in 2 Timothy 3, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As he encouraged the new believers in Galatia, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He urged the Thessalonians not to be disturbed by affliction because, because, quote, we are destined for this. For we will suffer. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And you might be thinking right now, why in the world Would I ever sign my life over to Jesus if it means that I will expect hardships and afflictions and potentially death? Why in the world would I sign, give my life over to Jesus Christ if this is what is to come? Are you serious? That sounds insane. And the answer is because the only other option is to live for yourself. It's to live for yourself and for worldly pleasure here and now. And then ultimately face God's judgment and wrath. Remember, if you try to save your life by trying to live for yourself, you are going to lose your life. But if you sign your life over to Jesus Christ and the gospel, you will save it. And these are the words of Jesus Christ himself, not Paul Vroom. 
And once you entrust your life totally to Christ, you don't need to live in fear of the future because the future is in his hands. You trust him completely. And thankfully, God does not let us know all the details. There's some of us here, myself included, if I knew all, if God said, okay, Paul, here's the, de the details about ministry. You're going to sign up for ministry. You're, you're going to get really excited about going and sharing the gospel and, and seeing his kingdom expanded and reach lost people for Christ. You're going to get really excited. And then it's all going to hit the fan. There's going to be dissension. There's going to be people who slander you and say just terrible, awful things. There will be church splits. In fact, you're going to be written up in the newspaper as this kind of person or that kind of person. Are you up for it? Your marriage is going to go through difficult seasons where you're going to question, should we even be doing this? Should we be going to do this instead? Should we just totally get out of ministry because it's just wrecking us right here? Are you in for it? Are you excited? Thankfully, God doesn't let us know all the details about what's going to happen to us in the future. Because if God does let us know in advance all the details and all that it included, and that it included potential imprisonment and pain and misery, think about the anxiety at the final countdown. Oh, it's going to come. I know it's going to come tomorrow. He told me. The Holy Spirit told Paul that prison and suffering was going to be awaiting for him, but nothing more. And we should all live each and every day all out for Christ. All out for Christ, knowing that if he brings trials into our lives, he will give us the grace to endure. It's a promise. He will give us the grace to endure. And we must live in light of eternity. Not for the fleeting pleasures of this life only. The only way to live in light of eternity is to be totally abandoned for Christ here and now, trusting him in every trial. So to finish the course, you must recognize that God has entrusted a ministry to you. You must realize that you are a conscript, not a volunteer. And you must also sign over your life to Jesus Christ, expecting that hardships are going to follow. Number four, to finish the course... You must keep the finish line in view. And the finish line is this, faithfulness to the gospel of God's grace. To finish the course, Paul said that he needed to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. Not everyone is called to be a pastor as Paul was. But whatever gifts God has entrusted you, whatever thing he has given you, the bottom line is the same. For all of us, we must be faithful by our lives and our words to the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of God's grace. If our lives and our words betray the gospel of God's grace, then in some sense we are guilty of the blood and the condemnation of those who are tainted by our failure. If our lives and our words bear witness to the, the good news of God's grace, we are innocent of the blood of those who we came in contact with. 
Paul's referring here to, to Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 3. And he's giving the picture of a, of a watchman who is standing on the walls outside of the city whose job is to be looking to see if there's any danger coming. And if a watchman sees danger coming, but he decides not to say anything but go save himself, blood, he is guilty of the blood of the people who died. But if he was a faithful watchman that stood on the watch, on the wall, on the watchtower, looking to see if there's danger, and he saw danger coming, and he alerted, he rang the bell, he yelled, he rang every doorbell, beat on every door, and said, the enemy is coming, the enemy is coming. Here, save your souls by doing this. He is no longer guilty of the blood of those that he warned. So to be innocent of the blood of all men and of all women and of all children, keep your eye on the finish line. There you are standing before the judge of the, the whole world to hear well done your life and as God gives you opportunity, your words must bear witness to testify to the good news of Jesus Christ. A way has been made through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Will you trust in him? For he is trustworthy to save you. The gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ is the good news that he will pardon guilty sinners who trust in Christ. That's, that is the good news. That Jesus Christ will pardon the sin and the guilt of sinners. But it also includes the bad news that he will eternally damn those who trust in themselves or in their own good works and thereby despising what Christ did on the cross. If people are not convicted about their own sin before a holy God, they will not flee to Christ for refuge from God's wrath. Paul uses the, the phrase proclaiming the kingdom as a parallel with the gospel of the grace of God. The, the kingdom is the realm where Jesus is Lord, where Jesus is King. And our lives and our words must bear witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If we want to hear, well done, when we cross the finish line. So keep your eye on the goal. The goal is not just, man, I stumbled across. I did enough stuff. Crossing the finish line strong is one who to the end testifies of the grace of God, the good news, the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Last one. To finish the course, you must feed on and proclaim the whole counsel of God. Paul told these men, listen, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That phrase implies that Paul was balanced in his teaching 
the full breath of God's word. Genesis was used. Exodus, Leviticus, number, the whole breath of God. And here's, here's, here's the truth. Heresy is often truth out of balance. Heresy is often truth out of balance. Paul didn't ride his theological hobby horse and just ride on this thing. And this is the only thing I'm going to preach on and the only thing I'm going to talk about. He refers to God's purposes in Ephesians 1 verse 11 where he says that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We do not proclaim the whole counsel of God if we tiptoe around the doctrine of predestination. We, we, we declare it boldly and bravely and clearly because it's the whole counsel of God's word. On the other hand, we do not proclaim the whole purpose of God if we fail to teach what scripture so plainly teaches that every person is responsible for his sins and her sins, that everyone is commanded to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Both doctrines are true. You are predestined. You are foreknown. But you're also commanded to repent and believe. Both are true. As Paul explains in Ephesians 3, the purpose of God includes the mystery that the Gentiles are now fellow members of the body of Christ through the gospel. And that was a hard teaching for the Jews to swallow, but Paul taught it. You're being built up into a holy household, a temple. Teaching the whole purpose of God means that we don't dodge the hard truths of God's word. And that's part of the reason for our shepherding moments this afternoon is because I, I, I don't want to skip over or dance around or miss out on teaching the hard truths found in God's word. If God's word reproves sin, we reprove sin. If, if it corrects wrong thinking, we correct wrong thinking. If it, if it calls us to encourage one another, to love one another, that's what we will command and we will do. So you might not be gifted to preach and teach God's word. But you are responsible to grow to understand the whole purpose of God. And through whatever gifts he has given to you, to impart your understanding to others. Last a story. John G. Patton was born in Scotland in 1824. He was raised in a godly home, came to personal faith in Jesus Christ, and as a young man, he worked in the inner city mission in Scotland. But the Lord put it on his heart to, to go as a missionary to the fierce cannibals in the New Hebrides in the South Pacific. In 1839, the first missionaries went to the New Hebrides, and no more then they had step foot onto that land. They were clubbed to death, they were cooked, and they were eaten. Talk about a welcome 
About 10 years later, some other missionaries landed on another island in the South Pacific where the, the natives actually showed an interest in their teachings. And the Lord gave these missionaries about 3,500 new converts during that time. And they communicated out that they need help. So in 1857, just 18 years after the first martyrs had shed their blood on the beach of New Hebrides, Patton felt very strongly that God was calling him to offer his life as a missionary in the New Hebrides. And as you can expect, he immediately met with very strong opposition. And I want you to kind of put this in your own context. Hey, mom, dad, you heard about the cannibals. God's calling me to go. How many parents would say, well, good for you. May the Lord bless you. I think we're going to do a fundraiser for you. No, immediately, he, he ran into some very strong oppositions from, from people who knew him. They argued that he would be leaving, for one, a very certain ministry that was being very effective there in Scotland, an inner city mission that needed him. And he would be throwing his life away if he went to these cannibals. His converts there in Scotland needed him. And besides, there were plenty of heathens here at home. Right? Why go halfway around the world to reach these savages when you could do it right here? Don't leave. Stay here. He was even offered, and some of us would go, whoa, I'll stay. He was offered a free house, and he was told to name his salary, and it would be given to him on the condition if he stayed. But these temptations only confirmed his calling to go to the South Seas. Among those who sought to deter him was, was an old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was always, cannibals, I can hear it, in the Scottish kind of accent, cannibals, you'll be eaten by cannibals. But Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day of my resurrection body, the day of resurrection, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton lost his wife, an infant son within a few months of their arrival. He lived in almost daily danger of his life. But God spared him, and he lived to the ripe old age of 83, spending his final years traveling around the world, publicizing and raising support for this mission. Late in his life, he said this, Oh, that I had my life to begin again. 
I would consecrate it anew to Jesus in seeking the conversion of the remaining cannibals on the New Hebrides. John Patton finished his course. He, like us, has every right to say it's time to retire and hand over the reins to some younger kids who might have a little bit more gumption. But he finished the course because he put the ministry that he received from the Lord above even life itself. My prayer was that I would convince you that you need to do the same. My prayer, as I'm about ready to say amen, my prayer is that God will continue to take this sermon to each and every heart. And some, a renewed sense of what God is calling you to do in whatever season and station of life that you may be in. For some of you, that God may be calling you to start to actually be faithful. Knowing that there's going to be afflictions. Knowing that he is good. That he'll give you the grace to see it to completion. But to actually start the ministry that he has called you to do. And then there's a the last category. For that person who is hearing this and is somewhat confused, that has not yet responded to the good news of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been doing the religiosity thing. Maybe you've been trying to do the good works thing. But you've never responded to God's free gift of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. This morning, the first thing is, will you respond to Jesus Christ? Will you respond in faith that he is good, that he is trustworthy, and that he has come to save you from your sins. And therefore, in turn, gives you new life and empowers you to live this kind of crazy, all-out-for-Christ kind of living.
respond. Respond to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.